0: Good morning. It's really bright. Um, So I'll be reading from Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt. Tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you should say this: The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, and so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, "Why are you untying the colt?" And they said, "The Lord has need of it." And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, and your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because they, you did not know the time of your visitation. <clears throat> the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Thank you, Rebecca. Well, again, uh, it's good to see you here. I'm so glad that you're here joining us this morning. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, this is a special Sunday. We look at this passage, and uh, before I do, I want to say just really quick, uh, I didn't mention it before, but yesterday we uh, helped host this thing called uh, an international festival with all neighbors' international ministries. And uh, it was great. It was fantastic to see people, from from many different faiths, uh, many different countries come to celebrate their culture in a very unique context in which we could preach the gospel uh, in a way to them, uh, not just in a way, but quite literally, uh, and also in creative ways. Uh, one, there was this man from Chinese man from Taiwan who knew a little bit of Hindi and sung a song in Hindi and played this little uh, wooden egg flute thing. I forget the name of it. Uh, but in such a way where uh, like the religious barriers were, were, uh, were transcended, and yet the gospel message was able to come forward through that because it was a worship song. Uh, it's fantastic to see. So thank you for those that came and helped, especially Andrew and David, uh, for uh, running sound and, and all that. Uh, thank you for coming for that. It was fantastic. So this passage is interesting because uh, we have all of so many people in Israel coming to gather in Jerusalem, for this week-long festival called Passover, and as Jesus marches in, or as he is carried in, there are two incredibly different responses that he's getting. And what is the difference? What makes up the difference? The disciples are praising him. the The crowds are praising him. The uh, saying some things that are very not just hospitable, but very even worshipful. And the Pharisees, on the other hand, are very much against that. So what's the difference between these? Well, let's, I think one way to illustrate this difference uh, is to go back about, I don't know, 57 years or so, uh, when Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points in one basketball game. All right, I don't know if you knew this. Wilt Chamberlain was an NBA player. He's in the Hall of Fame. He, he's up there as the top scorers of all time with Michael Jordan and now LeBron James, and uh, he once scored 100 points in a single game game. And a part of that, I mean, it's never been even approached since. A part of that was because he made 28 free throws out of the 32 attempts he had, which is an incredible percentage. Now, you might not know anything about basketball, uh, but this part is relevant, trust me. Uh, He made these baskets by shooting the ball underhanded. Now, all throughout the season, he has actually a terrible Terrible free throw percentage. I mean, shooting in like the forty percent. I mean, so it's like if he has the ball, you just want to foul him so that because he'll probably miss anyway. Uh, but this night, for whatever reason, he decides to try shooting it underhand. He's been working on it, and it's a much more reliable shot. But here's the thing: people will, you know, might make fun of you for it, but it's a much more reliable shot. And he made so many, uh, set the record, and celebrations were were just all over. But here's the thing, after that game, he went back to shooting overhanded with a terrible percentage and never went back to shooting underhanded. Now, why would you do that? Uh, There's a guy named Malcolm Gladwell who uh, has a podcast called Revisionist History, and, and he talks about this in one of his episodes. And he says, why in the world would you succeed so well and then pull back and, and, and stop doing so well. And it boils down to the approval of others. It boils down to, uh, to they're making fun of him. To, it almost feels embarrassing to shoot, if you're an NBA player, to shoot from between your knees. And this was keeping him from even greater greatness, if that were possible. In fact, it would have been possible. He could have scored many more points. And so what is this? This approval of others? This approval of others that was on the table with the Pharisees that I'll explain in just a moment. This is what they were afraid of losing. Uh, Approval can be profoundly powerful. Approval can uh, powerfully center our decisions. It can be the gravitational force that directs our steps even into ways that perhaps we don't want to go down. Approval is kind of like this story. Uh, there's a woman, this is a real story, a woman in North Carolina called 911 because her pet python had bit her hand and would not let go. Now by the time the rescuers arrived, the snake had swallowed all the way up to her wrist, and, and the first responders were trying to figure out how to get the snake off her hand, and she's screaming to them, whatever you do, don't kill the snake because she loved her pet python. Approval is like that python. We hate it. It actually is deadly. It can kill us. It can make us do things we would never normally do, but at the same time, we don't want to get rid of it. Approval is also like a rickety bridge. Imagine you're in the Amazon jungle in South America, you're in the Amazon jungle and there's, you know, these two cliffs and this old rickety rope bridge with wooden planks going from one end to the other. You've seen these on movies. Maybe you've actually walked on one. I don't know. But uh, and imagine going on that bridge. Approval is like that bridge in a sense. If, if one plank breaks, you're just going to hold on all the more tightly to the others. Because to let go of that approval feels like falling to your death there is all kinds of pressure that, that we have in our lives, and especially in this part of the country. There's a, a woman named Rosemary Miller, married to a pastor named Jack Miller, and, and they've uh, authored a lot of the, the Sonship materials that many of our men have gone through or are going through now. And Rosemary once visited the D.C. area and then uh, was having a conversation with some of the women there and realized and remarked later about how much pressure everyone around here lives with. Pressure to, to be the best, to perform the best, to have the best things, to, to look the best, to, not, to make it look like we're, we're all at our A-plus game all the time. And she remarked, that's really about maybe pleasing ourselves, maybe pleasing others, but either way, we're setting ourselves up for so much pain and suffering because no one could possibly live up to that expectation and that standard all the time. And there may be an area of our life where we're frustrated about how much and how often we fail. There may be an area where we just can't get out of a rut no matter what we do. We can all understand why approval and seeking after these things is a problem. And as I walked through and listened to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, uh, he discussed a lot of this problem, but he couldn't offer an actual solution. He couldn't offer an actual solution. He talked about it and talked about, well, maybe some people are more resilient than others. He had ideas, but he didn't offer a solution. The closest he got to a solution was talking about another player named Rick Barry, who always shot underhanded, and he even shot like 90, almost 95% average, which is ridiculous for the NBA. Uh, But the thing about Rick Barry that he wouldn't just, Malcolm Gladwell wouldn't endorse him, is that no one liked Rick Barry. He was just just an annoying man apparently. Uh, He got on your nerves. He would always tell you how you were doing something wrong. And so no one wants to be like him. uh, And yet, Rick Barry would say, why are you doing things in ways that are going to make you fail? And so how do you find this solution? Well, it's true. We need to care less about what others think of us. But we also need to care less about what we think of ourselves, maybe like Rick Barry did. I mean, Rick Barry didn't care what anyone thought of, of him, but he cared very much about what he thought of himself and his abilities to shoot the basketball. But we need to care less about what others think of us, because that that's a, a trap, and to care less about what we think of ourselves, because that can make us very arrogant and isolated. But here's the thing, we, we are designed, we are called, we are actually empowered to to. to by God, to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And kind of another part of how we're designed is that we're designed to need approval. We're designed for approval and to want it, but not from anyone else and not from ourselves. We are designed to get and hold and cherish approval from God. So how do we get approval from God? And what does this have to do with the passage at hand? We'll dig into those things in the next 20 minutes. So we're looking at this today's passage, Jesus, all these people responding differently. And so we're gonna look in this passage at what others think of us, and even what we think of ourselves, and then what God thinks of us. What others think of us, what we think of ourselves, and what God thinks of us. So first, what what others think of us. This passage is remarkable in a lot of ways, because the disciples in general cared very much about what other people thought about them. Uh, They would even fight among themselves on occasion about who was the best disciple. You know, who was was the best disciple? Who who was the smartest? Who was the holiest? I don't know how they fought, but they were talking about who was the best, who was the greatest. They would even fight and and quarrel in in other ways, too. Uh, James and John, were, were loved so much by Jesus. Uh, and there's something about James and John that, I mean, he, he loved all of his disciples, but James and John in particular were brothers. They were the sons of Zebedee. And uh, Jesus gave them the nickname Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. All right, so there's something about these guys. They're either tough or reckless or, or something. But these guys, you know, they're getting in trouble a lot. I don't know. But James and John, they were the sons of thunder. And what did they do at one point? But they had their mommy come in the side door. Like the disciples are fighting about who's the greatest, but James and John get their mommy to come and ask Jesus, hey Jesus, would you, you know, would you let my sons have your top cabinet positions when you come into your cab- your your power and your kingdom and your glory, and uh, like they couldn't just ask him themselves; they had their mom do it on their behalf. You know, so it's it, there's uh, a lot of maneuvering. There's a lot of a lot of caring about what people think, and so it makes this. A little extraordinary. So here's a passage again. When Jesus drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples to go and retrieve this colt. Right. So there's two things we're going to look at here. One, they go to receive this colt, and then we're going to look at the procession itself. So he says, hey, go to the certain town. You're going to find a colt, and I want you to untie it and take it back to me. And if someone says, hey, what are you doing? This is what you say. Now, this is very much like... Uh, this takes a lot of boldness, first of all. Uh, and, and I want to say also that it's, well, it's possible that this cult owner was a disciple of Jesus and it was all prearranged. There's, It's possible, we don't know, but it's just as likely, maybe even a little more likely, that Jesus simply knew where this cult was because he knows everything, and that he was able to move in the owner's heart to allow the cult to be taken. Uh, it's it's less likely Jesus had reservations for the cult, in other words. Um that Jesus just knew where the colt was, and he moved in the owner's heart because he needed this colt for his trip into Jerusalem. But either way, it's going to take some boldness uh, because you just don't do that. And uh, it's like walking up to someone's door, walking into their home, and finding wherever it is they keep their car keys, uh, which is either in a bowl or on the wall or wherever you keep your car keys. uh, And Picking up the keys, walking out the door, and driving off with their car—it is very, it is exactly like that. No, you don't do that. You don't just take someone's car. Uh, it's the same back then. You don't just take someone's colt. It took some boldness. And so when someone asked them, I mean, they had to trust Jesus that that he knew what he was doing and sending them uh, sending them on this mission. Um, you know, sometimes following Jesus in so many ways. It requires boldness. It requires doing something a little socially unconventional. Sometimes it involves outright challenging uh, what the culture has as valuable. Sometimes it might mean challenging individual beliefs with respect, but also with love. Now, in, in America, you know, we can awesome, uh, often get accustomed, uh, as Christians, especially, to hearing. God's commands to feeling convicted about them. I think Francis Chan spoke about this a lot. He was amazed, he was a pastor and he was amazed at how how Christians would love to feel convicted But he didn't seem to see any changes in their lives. That he would, Francis Chan would be known for his sermons that are incredibly convicting and great illustrations and powerful. You you could watch him on YouTube and you could see, wow, that's a really good point. That's really amazing. That's really powerful. And, And yet he saw in his church that people were coming to hear him give powerful illustrations and be convicted, but he didn't see his church actually changing. And he said, what is this where we want to feel convicted but don't change? Our, our lives. And it seems in America, this is something that we're doing. So when Jesus calls us, when we follow him, he doesn't just want us to feel convicted about how we need to improve our lives. There's, there's aspects of actually going and doing things that might look funny to the rest of the world. And I don't know what that is for you. Now, it's not a matter of being blatantly obnoxious. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Was talking about doing things. Not worshiping things that the world goes after. Not prioritizing things that the world would prioritize, in other words. And that looks funny to others. So what is that for you? What does it look like for you to get the cult? What are you intimidated, perhaps, to do? Well, they go and they get the cult. And, uh, and when they go get the colt, they bring it to Jesus and they, uh, they, they present it to him and they start uh, throwing their cloaks on the colt, and as he uh, he starts riding along, and they're spreading their cloaks on the rolled road, and there's a whole multitude of disciples gathered. So uh, there are the twelve disciples. There's the inner ring of the twelve. Uh, even within that, there were uh, there's a smaller group. I guess Peter, James, and John were maybe his tightest group. Uh, but beyond the twelve, there were hundreds, maybe even thousands at times. The number went up and down of people that were his disciples would travel with him, wanted to hear him, wanted to follow him. Uh, and, uh, and they were gathered there, all of them, for Passover in Jerusalem, which is a, a once-a-year celebration. Uh, it's a once-a-year festival. Uh, there are literal feasts. There's all kinds of things going on at the temple. And they're all there, and they see Jesus, and they are excited. And uh, what, they do, uh, what they do is they, they lay down their cloaks on the back of the colt, and they lay down their cloaks on the road. Now, this is something that was done before in their culture. So uh, there's a king named Jehu, and when Jehu was named king, uh, all, the whole city gathered and put their cloaks on the road then as well. Uh, it's a way to celebrate the king. It's, it's a sign of humility. It's a sign of, 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 of respect to him. Now, how, how's that? Let's unpack that. See, cloaks then are not unlike coats today. Uh, coats or jackets or nice, just any kind, anything we wear, really. Uh, Most of the cloaks were mostly ordinary. The poor would wear shabby cloaks, uh, and if you were wealthier, you could afford a nicer cloak. If you were really, really wealthy, you could afford a robe, a nice robe. Uh, Maybe you'd wear that. Uh, Your cloak could communicate a lot about who you were, where you were in society, uh, how much you had achieved, and it's not too different from where we are today. It's not too different, you know. There are things that we wear, things we drive, where we live, uh, how we conduct ourselves, things how we carry ourselves, how uh, things that we say, that names that we drop, or uh, I don't know. There are a lot of things that we can do to signify to the world how important we are, and uh, little things that we do to humble brag, or uh, or just even without doing it, just literally whatever we wear, it does signify something. And here they were. Laying down their significance on the road. Laying down their status. You had, had for the poor, with with shabbier cloaks, this would have been profoundly liberating. To say, hey, before this king, it doesn't matter who, I'm not a commoner, I'm not poor before this king, I'm just one of his many subjects. I am who I am at my core. And I am, I'm going to worship him for just who I am. And for those who are more wealthy, it would have been humbling, but also ultimately liberating. Humbling to say, yeah, I can't impress this guy. I can't impress this king. What, whatever I've achieved in life isn't going to impress him. And so I'm going to shed this off. It would be very humbling for the wealthy and the important to say, all I am is just my flesh and bones and my soul. And, and I just put myself before the Lord to worship him as I am. So for the poor, be liberating. For the wealthy, it'd be humbling, but also liberating for them to worship the king by laying down their cloaks. And so what if, you know, what if we, imagine this, what if you had a literal cloak, a literal jacket, and there were words printed on it, and these words had on it what you want the world most to believe and know about you? Things about yourself that, if they weren't true, you might begin to wonder who you were. If there were parts of your history, parts of your life, things that you've achieved, things that you have, that all of a sudden were taken from you, are there any of those things that, if that happened, you, you wouldn't know who you were anymore? You might struggle to find your sense of value, your sense of worth. Those are, so imagine those are printed on this jacket. Imagine those are printed there, and maybe it's the actual brand names of the clothing. Maybe, maybe for you, it's, it's having brand name stuff. I don't know. Maybe it's where you went to school. Maybe it's how much money you make, what you've done in your life, who you know. But, but uh, they would be a description of what you'd like the world to think about you. With all this, uh, what would it take for you to lay that down and to live your life without anyone knowing how special you really were, to to lay down your cloak before Jesus. Now, that would free you, though, to see what was more valuable. It would free you up to see, hey, what I'm wearing isn't all that. What the world thinks of me isn't all that. What Jesus thinks of me is what it's all about. And so we look first at what the world thinks of us, second at what we think of ourselves First of what the world thinks of us, and now what we think of ourselves. And this is really the key problem with with the Pharisees. That the Pharisees cared, yes, about what others thought of them, yes, but perhaps even more so, they cared about what they thought of themselves because the Pharisees had set themselves up as judge of others. They had set themselves up as the authority in one sense, they would care very much about what others thought of them, but they had the power, they had the authority, and they didn't have to to please people to get it. In many ways, they just really cared about what they thought of themselves. And so, uh, however, that some of this was threatened, though, by uh, these disciples uh, shouting praise to Jesus. And so they say, "'Teacher, rebuke your disciples.'" There's a lot going on here, because first, uh, the Pharisees were nervous about Jesus gaining more popularity than they themselves enjoyed. Uh, they were nervous, perhaps, also about, about what this would mean politically. Because if, Rome allowed the religious leaders to have their authority. Rome was the big boss. Rome was the empire in which uh, the Israelites lived. And they allowed this to happen, religion to, to uh, take place, and for their own local authority to exercise a degree of authority in deference to the emperor. But little things like coup d'etats, like that's a problem. So if Jesus is this king, if he's this new Messiah, and Rome catches wind of this, this could mean that Rome would crack down even harder, that the religious leaders would be put out of power, and Roman officials would, would, would clench down even tighter, right? They're worried about a lot of things, worried about essentially themselves. And there's also an element to what Jesus, what his disciples are saying about Jesus' even spiritually, even uh, in reference to Scripture? Not just that he could be a political Savior, but what if he is really, truly the Messiah? Because they touch on that. So what likely happened, what I think happened, is that Jesus knows he's the Messiah, right? He knows he's the Messiah, and so he perhaps orchestrated this, I think he orchestrated this ride on a young colt into Jerusalem to fulfill a prophecy in Zechariah, Chapter nine that that fulfills it that where it says your king is coming to you on a colt on the foal of a donkey so fulfilling that he was welcomed by the crowds uh, who were there and others who were there uh, who were shouting quoting Psalm one eighteen blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord now this was perhaps uh, done with uh, with politeness it was, a, it was a it could be a common greeting as well blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord but uh, It is also possible that that really what's going on, if you see this, is that they're really praising him as the Messiah. They're praising him as the fulfillment of the prophecies of this coming king, the king who is actually going to come and deliver Israel from out of the hands of their enemies. The crowds may not have fully realized what they were saying, in other words. But maybe the Pharisees started to sense that. Maybe they knew that they were getting really, really close to home. And that if Jesus was the Messiah, what did that mean about them and their power? And that made them very nervous. Their their desire to do this, their desire to have their own, uh, to have this power and what they thought of themselves. Uh, You know, they bumped heads a lot with Jesus. You know, so there was what the Pharisees thought of themselves. And there's what Jesus thought of the Pharisees. And those two were very much, very often at ends. And very, very soon after Jesus enters Jerusalem, he even goes into the temple, makes a big ruckus about how the officials there are treating the temple and treating this place like a tent of robbers instead of a house of worship. And he's saying this in the faces of the religious leaders. And so what the Pharisees think of themselves and what Jesus thinks of themselves are butting heads very sharply. So their love and insistence on What they thought of themselves being most important, of their judgment on their life, made them blind to who Jesus was. You know, it's very not, it's very much not so much what Jesus says that uh, that we uh, that we might disagree with objectively. It's often so much, uh, not so much that uh, that that we or we think uh, the Bible is kind of off. Uh, we, objectively, but it's actually more so that we find Jesus often contradicts us, and that the Bible can often contradict us. If we have a problem with Scripture and what it teaches, so very often it's, it's that we have a problem with how it comments on our lives, and, and we don't like that. We don't want an outside judge coming in to tell us how to live differently. And so often when we reject Christianity it's we can list all kinds of reasons but usually we just don't like someone else telling us what to do or we don't especially don't like someone telling us that we did something wrong or that we even sinned we just hate that feeling. And so they told Jesus, "Hey, rebuke your disciples." Cuz they're out of line. <laughs> he he says, "Are you kidding? If if I if they weren't crying out, the rocks would cry out." Because I am the King, I am the Messiah, I am worthy of all this worship. And if no one's going to praise me, the, the ground, that's literally what he meant, that the ground would cry out in some way. The crown would do that, because he deserved that. Now, this is, this is hard, because there's, there's a Pharisee inside me. There's a Pharisee inside all of us. I, I really don't like it when, when people confront me on my sin, I really don't like it when, when God, when I'm reading Scripture, and there's something in there that makes me think, well, if that's really true, I need to change my life. I really don't like that feeling. There's a Pharisee that, that wants to be judge of me inside each of us. We might reject the need for approval of others, maybe, but, but we want to hold on tight to our right to have uh, judgment and the final authority in who we are. You know, Rick Barry, it's true, shot 94.7% one season, but half the people he knew didn't like him. The other half hated him, as the saying goes. Uh, Rick Barry was always telling people how they could do something better. He was always living perfectly. He was always doing things the best he could. And uh, in his eyes, he was doing everything perfectly. Uh, and, you know, even in all of this, he, he far overshot uh, when he was judge of his life, he also placed himself as judge of others. And, and, and that's what the Pharisees did too. They wanted to be judge of themselves. No one else can be judged. God can't be judge of me. I want to be judge of myself. But then you become a judge of others. And I say this very charitably towards Rick Barry. I'm picking on him. I am. Because uh, I do the same thing. I do exactly the same thing. And it's so often, how do you say it? So often, in the areas that I'm most insecure about in my life, that I can be the most critical of others in their life. It's so often, you know, when I find myself criticizing someone, I should stop and say, no, wait a minute. Am I really wrestling with that? What's going on here? And, and all these things, they can impact our relationships, our marriages. If you're married, your parenting. If you have kids, it can impact how you are in the workplace, how you interact with your, with your colleagues. It can interact... It can impact so much, you know, really with, with approval, whether it's approval from others or approval from ourselves. As I said before, we were made for it, I'll get to that in a second. We were made for approval, but uh, we are really just like approval black holes. They recently photographed a black hole, right? Uh, and they're able to find this, and it looks kind of like the... The Eye of Sauron, I guess, from The Lord of the Rings. Uh, It's like this ring of fire kind of thing. And uh, so I learned a little bit about what black holes are. I kind of knew a little bit of this before from high school, I suppose. But um, a black hole, it's a region of space-time exhibiting such strong gravitational force that nothing, not even particles and electromagnetic radiation, not even light, can escape from inside it. And we're each like approval black holes. I am. And when I'm like that, not even light can escape. But in that time, it's light that I need most. It's light that I need most. And contrary to like an actual black hole, I am redeemable. You are redeemable. God can change your heart. In fact, he loves in a very, very loving way. He delights in a loving way to show you that you're actually worse off than you thought you were, but that you're far more loved than you ever imagined or even dared hope that you would be. And so, yes, we we can't rely on what others think of us, and we shouldn't rely on what we think of us, but we are made for approval, and so where are we going to get it? To get it from God himself. So then there's what God thinks of us. So what Timothy Keller, he's a pastor, and he says this, what we're really looking for in all this is an ultimate verdict that we are important and valuable. That's what we're looking for. It's like a judgment. If, if the screen was up, you would see that they're doing a, a play here at Stonebridge, and there's a massive golden, it's, it's the scales of justice is what that is back there. That what we really want is an ultimate verdict. We want the verdict to go in our favor. We want a verdict that we are important and valuable. And we look for that ultimate verdict every day, Tim Keller says, in all the situations and people around us. And that means that every single day, we're on trial. That every day, we put ourselves back in a courtroom. Am I going to be judged well today? And We put ourselves, maybe even literally put ourselves in our own courtroom. Can I prove to myself that I am good enough? Continuing on, but the Apostle Paul says that he has found the secret. What? Tell me. The trial is over for the Apostle Paul. He is out of the courtroom. It is gone. It is over because the ultimate verdict is in on us because Jesus Christ went on trial instead. That the only way we're going to have that verdict that we want is by looking to Jesus. That yes, on sun, or on. Monday morning, he or Sunday morning, he marched into Jerusalem. Sunday morning, Palm Sunday, he marched into Jerusalem. And they were praising him. And yes, that same crowd later that week were shouting, crucify him. Their, their love for him was very fickle. And I can so often see my love for Jesus be fickle like that crowd. Going along with the crowd. Going along and being pulled by what others think about me and even doing things that I wouldn't normally do because others are pulling me towards that. But we see that that verdict that we long for is established, it is final because Jesus Christ went on trial in my place. So that I don't have to be on trial anymore. And so there's whatever others think of us, what I think of me, and what what God thinks of us. And the difference maker for this, for the disciples, they had Jesus with them, you know, just being around Jesus can change you in ways you might underestimate. But being around him, knowing what God thinks of us, is what can radically change us. There's, uh, he, he fulfills this, this passage. Now, how, how does this This happened too. How does this verdict come about? Uh, Well, first we see that that, uh, in Psalm 118, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. And here it is. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. As we come to Jesus and lay down our cloaks, lay down what others think of us, lay down what we even think of ourselves at His feet and surrender all we have, He clothes us with that verdict. Clothes us with garments of salvation. With Remember the robes were just for the wealthy? He clothes us with a robe of righteousness. We look like, bride, like the groom and the bride on their wedding day. We look that good. In His sight, the verdict is in. The verdict makes a huge difference. What is legal makes it really means everything. Like if, you're, if you're speeding on the road and no one sees you, you don't get a ticket, you're probably not going to get a ticket. I mean, there's a small chance someone got you on camera and you might get a ticket later, but typically if no one sees you do it, uh, like it's as if it didn't happen. Well, here's the thing. God, God sees everything. He knows what happens. He, he sees everything that we do, and yet, legally, we are declared righteous. How is this possible? Well, for us to be clothed in righteousness, Jesus was stripped of his clothes and nailed to a cross. For us to be given garments of salvation, he was, he was beaten and whipped, given a crown, not of gold, the crown of thorns, so that we could rule and reign with him one day. And that in our silence, yes, the rocks may cry out. But here we see Jesus, the rock, the rock of ages, the rock, cry out on our behalf, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then finally, before he died, he cries out, it is finished. A legal term. It is finished. The verdict is in. There is nothing that you can do if you believe in Jesus. There's nothing the world can think of you that's going to change what God thinks of you. There's nothing that what you think of you It can't can't change what God thinks of you if you believe in Christ because that's all that matters in God's sight is whether you're in Christ or not. And if you are, yes, we'll struggle. Yes, we are going to find and run butt into heads with that inner Pharisee. But as we come into contact more and more with this truth of the gospel, he changes us. There's a pastor who, uh, who often gives this illustration when he's doing premarital counseling. Uh, he'll, uh, he kind of gives this illustration. He says, when to help uh, engaged couples understand themselves, really, and it's to help married couples un- understand themselves and to help everybody understand themselves. But, uh, but he says, uh, when someone gets engaged, it's like the two come together and uh, one says, hey, you, you've done a really good job part-time of meeting my needs and I'd like to offer you a permanent full-time job of meeting my needs. And, and the one who's being proposed to you says, oh yes, you have done a good job of meeting my needs, and I will accept your offer of, 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 be, of giving yourself a full-time job of meeting my needs. And, and we start off marriage thinking that, yeah, this works well, we click together, we make each other happy, and conflict starts to happen in marriage when you uh, realize you have to let go of that demand, of that expectation, that, that you believe that marriage exists to meet your own needs, and actually what you find, the more and more you're able to let go that, of the idea and the demand that your needs be met by the other. As you lay your cloak down, as it were, you lay down your demands that you be respected and admired for who you want to be seen as by the other, and you just go to each other as you are, it's then that you're finally free to love them. You're finally free to love them for who they are as well. And it's the same, the gospel is the only thing I've seen that has the power to do that. That we can come to Jesus as we are, as the one who himself was stripped naked, that we might be richly robed. That we can have our hearts changed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we uh, ask that you would indeed, indeed show us how we the things that we cling tightly to, show us the rags that we hold over ourselves that we think we think clothe us splendidly. Father, help us to to see those and help us surrender them. Father, we know it's hard to surrender anything unless there's something better in sight. Uh, so remind us, Father, and show us. Make it all the more real to us uh, the robes of righteousness that you have prepared for us. Remind us, Father, uh, the verdict that is in our favor, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ has done. Father, fill our hearts in all of this with true joy. Fill our hearts with praise for you, Uh, for we do not have to live for our own praise. We do not have to live for what everyone thinks of us or even what we think of us, but Father, you and you alone, because of Christ, look on us with delight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.